Welcome to Catholic Stuff You Should Know, a J10 initiative. Greetings to everyone in listener land. This is Father Nathan Goebel of Catholic Stuff You Should Know. Many of you have been wondering when the merch is going to be available. Well, look no further. 8 a.m. Monday morning, this coming Monday, you're going to be able to log on to our website, catholicstuffpodcast.com, and go to our merchandise mart where you will find our limited first edition Catholic Stuff You Should Know t-shirts. This is a perfect gift for Christmas or for avid listeners. Check it out, catholicstuffpodcast.com. The shirts will be shipped from December 5th to December 15th in order to get there in time for Christmas. And when they're gone, they're gone. We're not making any more until after the new year. So there are limited sizes. Uh, We are, once we're out of a size, we're out of the size. So if you're a bigger dude, make sure you get on now so that you don't get stuck with a ladies extra small. Have a great day. We'll talk to you soon. Laters. Welcome to the podcast. This is a uh, historic moment from a rainy evening in Rome. This is Father John, and I am with the one and only Father Austin Licky. Hello. Welcome, my friend. Thank you so much. Good to be with you. Cheers. Cheers to you. I am uh, thrilled to have you. Maiden voyage here for him. Kind of freaked him out uh, a little while ago. I said, you better not blow this, you know. This is your kind of your rookie rookie time at bat here. So Yeah, so this is totally nerve-wracking to, uh, to be on it, but... But you're a long-time listener. Long-time listener, first time, well, not quite the first time podcaster, but um, I've been able to be on the show a couple of times, but uh, to actually kind of be in the saddle officially. Yeah, it's a different experience. You know, you're, you're sitting here and you're just talking into a microphone in my room and um, then magically these things kind of happen. Yeah, you know? I yeah, it'd be interesting to see. So backstory, if you're just kind of dropping into the podcast and haven't listened for a bit, Father Mike is back in Denver, and he is uh, enjoying, I think, snow right now. I think it's snowing in Denver. And uh, last sighting, he was in the library in Denver, the theological library. That's a good thing. Um, Very good. Yep. But we haven't haven't seen him nor heard from him, nor will we, which is fine. (laughs) Uh, uh, But he is happily back home, and he'll be podcasting with uh, Olaf and the Goebel, uh, which leaves me here by myself. And uh, now I got a new partner. So excellent. Somebody said to me recently. They said, um, "Are you uh, are you going to go start your own podcast now that you've been abandoned?" And I said, <laughs> "If Justin Timberlake never would have left in sync, right? Where would he be right now?" True so, enough. Well, yeah. I, I don't want to inhibit progress here. So <laughs> no. if you if you need to go off and do your own um, projects, no, you know. I'll stick with the band. But you were uh, you were definitely um, a no brainer uh, to bring on. And again, we're kind of. Um, filler over here. We're not going to be doing this uh, too regularly, but um, Father Austin is one of the longtime friend of mine, uh, and one of been one of the longest supporters, I think, of the podcast. Uh, yes, I mean, from early days, I was listening to it just because I was so impressed with y'all's sort of uh, answer to the call that Pope Benedict made, right? Right. Um, to for priests and seminarians to take on kind of new modes of preaching and new modes of evangelization and doing that so that y'all just kind of said all right well we're just going to just dive into the deep end and try to make this thing happen and so i just think it's a great project and and it's also it seems to me at least as an outsider a bit of an outgrowth of y'all's apostolate together as the uh, companions right as well yeah and so i think that comes across in the uh, podcast a lot and just yeah i'm just a huge fan of y'all's work in the companions and uh, the work of the podcast so it's a it's uh, yeah, it's kind of a dream to be able to be part of it. So Father Austin is a um, uh, a Dominican, so Order of Preachers, and uh, but prior to that, 
we were we got to know each other in the college seminary, St. John Vianney College Seminary up in St. Paul, Minnesota, mm-hmm. back when he was Jared Lickey from That's Kentucky. Right. <laughs> now he's Father Austin of the Order of Preachers. I like how becoming a Dominican gives me an English accent. It does. I mean, yeah. I'll take it. But. Yeah. No, and uh, so, but but back in St. Paul, we kind of together uh, got to know the 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 original companions, right? The right. the OG companions. So <laughs> the guys who. Uh, um, you know, uh, who were just really instrumental in us. And so Father Austin has had a, a long understanding, respect, and sense of the charism and has been a great support to us. So Yeah, they really were kind of our mentors in college and obviously the inspiration for y'all's work in Denver. But then also so much, I think, of the way that I think about priesthood and even think about formation and those things comes from those days that you and I experienced a really particular moment at that college seminary, actually. And so I think um, a lot of our life has been an outgrowth of that, you know, initial um, inspiration, kind of an initial experience. And so it's uh, great to see things like this grow out of that over yeah. time. Well, you're in the family, uh, certainly, uh, the spiritual family, and uh, we have the great joy of uh, being college chaplains together over <laughs> here as uh, any regular listener. I think Emily Dalsky is probably more excited about this moment than anybody else. She is. Been, Excellent. Well, she yeah. says the fans want Licky. She's been telling me that for months. <laughs> So, uh, Emily, we're very happy that you're uh, you're listening. And then I think there's probably some other Bernardi kids as well who are very happy that their uh, chaplains are together. Though, though, Coop, we just had dinner with Father Evan, and he uh, he's like, "Let's have a nightcap." And we're like, "Sorry, dude." And he's like, "Oh, so." Well, we might do that anyway, right? But uh, no, it's a joy. It's one of the joys of being over here, just because I'm sure, as y'all have talked about on the podcast before, just being a priest student so much of your life that you became a priest for and so much of your life that you lived before being in studies is uh, it's just kind of cut off. And so um, as priestly and important as the work of study that we're doing is, um, to have that opportunity to serve uh, those students, and particularly great students who just really want to live Catholic life here in Rome for those months that they're here, it's a great opportunity to serve them. We love it. It's, the, it's the, one of the highlights of the year, and uh, it's great to do it together, too, you know, um, with Coop. To be, uh, it's not just like a chaplain, but it were a team and uh, a brotherhood, and, and everybody kind of compliments and somebody, everybody finds a home somewhere. And I love listening to you guys preach and uh, teach. And so one of the exciting things about having you on the podcast here now, with a little more regularity, is um, is getting to uh, hear you kind of break stuff down because I do think you're one of the best teachers I've seen. So, but enough of that complimenting stuff. Exactly. Right? Let's we- get down to <laughs> banter here. So. <laughs> I uh, texted him a couple days ago and said, uh, you know, hey, I want to get you a special uh, bourbon here. Uh, hard to find in Rome. And I said, what's your favorite? He said, Pappy Van Winkle. And I was like, oh, my. Pappy Van Winkle is like a $3,000 bottle. Easy to come by, I'm sure. I was like, I asked the wrong guy. He's from Kentucky. <laughs> you did say Eagle Rare also, which is another exceptional. Yeah, Eagle Rare is made in Frankfurt, I think. Um, I should know these things off the top of my head, but I don't. And uh, no, it's one of those great bourbons that's not super expensive, but it's just a really great bourbon. It is. It's not a typical one, though. Right. So it's in a big, tall bottle. It's got a big, bald eagle on the front of it. It's very American. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you, should, uh, you should keep your eye out for that. Right. Well, I had my eye out for it here. There's <laughs> actually this kind of hipster place down the street called Whiskey & Co. Open that me. I found. Yeah. It's got a nice selection of whiskeys from all over the world. A little limited on the bourbons, but I, can imagine. But I yeah. found some Maker's Mark, so that's huge. Like, we good. haven't been able to find a regular Maker's supplier here, uh, so uh, so that's a that's a great great little spot. And uh, so we got your Maker's Mark, but we have not uh, christened it yet and opened it. We, we're drinking wine instead, which is going to tie into the uh, 
into the podcast here in a second. But uh, yeah, I didn't want to defile the podcast tradition my first time in, but I did find this wine the other day, um, which is made up in Alto Aldige, which is, um, or it's also called Sud Tirol. It depends on if you're in the Germanic mm. side, they call it Sud Tirol as kind of like the most southern part of the German kind of cultural empire. Uh, or they called it Alto Adige, which is kind of the most northern, kind of northeastern part of Italy, which has kind of very Germanic influences. But it's um, it's called uh, Sankt Magdalena. Sankt Magdalena, that's right, which is the uh, theme we're going to jump into here in a second. Now, you've not been to the Dolomites, though. No, I've not okay. been up that way. I mean, this, this area, Venice is the farthest northeast I've been. This yeah. area is outstanding. Uh, I think that uh, as a mountain guy, it's like they are, they're, they're, there's something about them that's unlike anything I've ever seen. But like better than the Alps. Well, I kept asking Italians that. Yeah. I said, what would you like more? And they're like, what? And typical, like my insane questions um, that don't make any sense to anybody, you know. But I think the Dolomites are a section of the Alps, technically. Oh, I always okay. thought they were a separate range. But the they're, they're, um, the Dolomite is a kind of rock. And so it's, uh, it's kind of a distinct, the Dolomitia, this kind of distinct section of the larger Alpine range. Um, but I think that they're not as like stunning as, you know, you go up by, um, like Chamonix in these areas. Mm. Um, but there's, I've never seen such sheer mountains, you know, just, they're just massive cliffs. Like there's something about the Dolomites. You'll see it. We're going to go there in the spring after mud season. So (laughs) very good. What is the secret for you of, uh, living in a city and not losing your mind? Because I was like climbing over hordes of, you know, tourists today yeah. trying to get over to our coffee shop, um, Itabli. And I was just like, I've been in the city for, I haven't left the city in two weeks and I feel like I'm going to lose my mind. But I, my friend here has lived in New York. He's lived in DC. Yeah. Uh, he does well. He thrives here in Rome. <laughs> like, what is the secret? Because you're a country boy originally. Well, true enough. I mean, I, I, one thing, I think it's just a temperament thing. So, I mean, some people just are just like cities more than not, you know? Um, but I have to say, I don't notice the kind of frenetic nature of living in a city until I'm out of it. And then you go, oh, that's what quiet right. sounds like. Right. You know, like I remember one year, I think it was my first year in New York. I just completed my first year. And I went to um, see a friend of mine who kind of lived in kind of rural Maryland. We were staying at his house, priest friend. And uh, I went to sleep and it was so quiet. I slept for 11 hours. <laughs> I don't think, I mean, also my first year of campus ministry was kind of like, yeah. you know, I think I was, you know, my batteries were pretty drained at that point. But, uh, so I always notice it when I leave that way. So I have to say, I'm not so conscious of it when I'm here. Um, but I do particularly, like, like you said, you're kind of climbing over tourists and this sort of thing. So what I've done is you kind of find places and times where there aren't so many people around. Yeah, that's key. It's like when I, like if I walk to school, cause I have to walk from basically the Coliseum to St. Peter's. Yeah. I have this route where there are no tourists. You're kind of going in and out of buildings and this sort of thing, but I just, um, because the idea of just kind of following behind, you know, 85 Germans yeah. um, on their way to wherever, it's just kind of like, no, I got to get out of here. Right, right. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, you learn how to how to get through it. But as David Toner would say, my old student used to just make fun of me for everything. He'd say, oh, first world problems, Father. That's It's certainly know. a first yeah. world problem. However, it's not unreal right. at the same time. Yeah, so... Well, good, man. It's hard to believe. We we took a trip to Rome, gosh, 05? You mean when we were in college? Yeah, when we met John no. Paul. I was just Let's thinking. Let's see, that was January 04, I think. January 04, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's just hard to believe. Yeah, because that would have been, was that your senior year? That was my senior year, yep. Um, 
I was coming out a little bit my senior year. My senior year. Yeah. It's late. <laughs> uh, sophomore year for me in college. Uh, but yeah, that was like Luke Roller and Tom Garretts and uh, Ryan Kramer. And it's just like amazing to Jim Barron. It's you know? an interesting group to look at. And that picture that we have with uh, Ratzinger. Right. Now Pope Benedict. Um, to see, you know, half that group. We were all in seminary at that point. Half that group um, are priests. Yep. The other half are married. I think everyone's married. Yep. Right. Otherwise. Yep. And uh, just kind of see how life works out that way. It's a great thing. Yeah. Do they know about our? We're referring to a trip that only the two of us. I know. It's like, this is the problem when you have an old friend on the podcast. So yeah, we took this trip, and uh, we it was like the it was like the money trip. We found this random German mass that Cardinal Ratzinger was saying, um, and we got into that, and we met him, and then we met John Paul right at the end of the trip. I mean, it was like amazing. Yeah. So it was it was Christmas time. It was like New Year's kind of New Year's time. Yeah. 2003, 2004, I had spent the spring of 2003 here in Rome as a study abroad program with Catholic Studies, the one that we're chaplain for now. And I think you were the instigator there. You're like, hey, if we like get a trip together, like, would you go with us to Rome? I was like, sure, sure. why not? And so we found these great tickets, which I look back on that. We Those were great, great airplane tickets as well, actually. And um, But we came over here. Yeah, we were here in Rome. We stayed at Bernardi. We stayed at the NAC. Remember that? North yeah. American College. We went to a CZ. I remember watching a movie one day. Uh-huh. Like we were just lazy, dumb college kids, <laughs> and I think we were watching like the Scarlet and the Black or something. Probably. And you're like, you guys were in Rome, and you're watching a movie <laughs> that takes place in Rome. I'm I'm out of here. I'm leaving. Like I just have this very distinct memory of like you were like I'm out of here. This is ridiculous. Yeah, so. this doesn't make any sense. <laughs> no, but we did that. We went to a CZ. We went to Florence. Remember, you almost died in the Uffizi. Remember that. What happened there? You, I think it was just tiredness or blood sugar or something. But you were like passing out oh, in the Uffizi. Yeah. We had like go. Sounds about right. Uh, we went to Naples. We went to or we went to Pompeii. We didn't yeah. really go to Naples at all. No, I don't um, remember liking Pompeii. I haven't been back. Is it? I don't. Maybe. Uh, that's the only time I've ever been myself. Yeah. So I don't. Yeah, that's not saying on my list. Well, that's crazy to think about back when we were young, 22, <laughs> twenty two. I think I was twenty. Yeah, it's crazy. So here we are, thirteen years later, back in Rome, back together, podcasting, and. Uh, yeah, about to get on. Uh, we love um, we love Oxford as well, but we'll share stories of Oxford and being on the lash with. Uh, yeah, we could do an Oxford friend, podcast. Uh, yeah, that'd be point. good some other time. So, <laughs> okay. Well, speaking of our awesome life and traveling <laughs> and everything, right. let's talk about another awesome trip we took <laughs> to France <laughs> about a month ago. So, uh, the title of this podcast is the Apostola Apostolorum which is Latin for the Apostle of the Apostles, feminine, Apostle of the Apostles. We'll get into what that means here in a little bit. Um, I'm anticipating a rather linear um, podcast today in terms of, like, it's actually going to be structured. We're going to work together to move towards, like, Well, you have telos. two Germanic minds yeah. put it I'm, together. I'm kind of things. excited about it because with rap, it was like... <laughs> Walking along, and then all of a sudden, bam, landmine, and you just step on a landmine, or you just get tackled and thrown off a cliff, and then you can, we're kind of climbing back up the, scaling the walls, and which I'm on very a podcast, yeah, is, yeah. is interesting, right. actually. And some people like that, I think, you know. Yeah. So. so we'll see what our reviews are. I'm sure we'll the, see. The listeners will will give us the reviews. I'm sure. Right. Somebody asked me. They said, um, "Is there a lot of engagement? A lot of give and take on the podcast?" This guy Joe from uh, San Jose. And I was like, well, it all depends on how much bourbon we drink, you know. <laughs> that, that's where you really kind of figure out, are we going to, you know. Yeah. So. so anyways, about a month ago, some of our friends from um, Denver came out, Andrew Polito, Megan Lyons, um, and then a couple of guys over here, my cousin Allie came down from Paris. We all met in Provence, 
and had a wonderful uh, long weekend together, thanks to your planning and a kind of a dream trip for Andrea. So Andrea Polito, we've talked about her many times, consecrated virgin, but in a very particular way, her um, patroness is St. Mary Magdalene. And the, tr- the French tradition is that Mary Magdalene uh, went to the south of Provence, or the south of France and the region of Provence, kind of where Italy ends and France begins on the coast, and uh, that she spent the remainder of her life there mm-hmm. after the resurrection. And so uh, what I want to do is, um, I had kind of heard this, and I was like, hmm. yeah, that's cute. <laughs> yeah. That's sweet, Andrea. And she's like, I want to go to Provence, and I want to do a pilgrimage to Mary Magdalene. And I was like, that's cute, Andrea. You know, great idea. Um, that's a nice little tale. And I was shocked by what we found. Mm-hmm. Now, you had been there before, because there's some Dominican connections, but I'm gonna, right. I want to have you um, tell the story a little bit about um, the tradition and then we'll kind of talk a little bit about our experience of kind of going to these places. So. Sure. I mean, um, <clears throat> yeah, so there's this Provençal legend. So Provence is that southeastern section of France that has Marseille, Nice, uh, those areas down there. And yeah, the tradition says that um, right after the resurrection uh, in Palestine, in Jerusalem, there was uh, a persecution of those who were following Christ. And uh, that a group of them were kind of um, condemned to death, basically, with a bunch of other prisoners and a bunch of other criminals. And so Mary Magdalene and her brother Lazarus, and also Martha. This is something else I found out mm-hmm. afterward. Did you read this? Yeah, I saw yeah. that, yeah. And um, so Mary, Martha, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, so the siblings, um, they're all kind of included with these criminals and put on a boat uh, in the Mediterranean and just kind of left there to die. But then the boat is miraculously guided to Marseille, and they get off the boat, and Mary Magdalene discovers that there are all these um, pagans, heathens, people who have not heard the gospel yet. And so she starts preaching, which is interesting in its own way. Let me grab this image of her preaching. Sorry, I keep talking. And so she starts preaching and converts all of them. And then uh, there's some lovely stories about that uh, whole experience of who she converted and and those sorts of things. But uh, uh, let me see this photo. Oh, yeah, there she is. She's got kind of the, the cross, and she's showing the cross to uh, right on the rocks, right in the bay, the Gulf of Marseille. So in this chapel we prayed at where he's looking at this image, this postcard, but she's got red hair. What do you think of that? Well, you know, she was, she's always depicted with kind of blonde hair, red hair, kind of supposed to be kind of sultry as uh, the idea there. Red hair, uh, sultry, huh? They usually well, are. It's sul- not unique to whose painting is this, actually? I don't know who this is. I oh, think- this was in the sanctuary at, at La Saint Baume. Yeah. Um, but because uh, usually yeah. they say red hair is kind of a sign that you don't have a soul. But <laughs> I'm not getting into these <laughs> fights. Um, I have too many redheaded people in my life to, to make remarks like yeah, that. Yeah, that's true. Well, we know Our Lady had uh, blonde, blonde hair, hair, obviously, right? Yeah. But the rest of them, it is a good, Blue it's a good eyes, question. Blonde, blonde hair. hair. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, but um, yeah, but uh, after she preaches and converts them, um, her brother Lazarus becomes traditionally the first bishop of Marseille. And Martha stays there. There's interesting stories about her. Um, uh, does she kill or just kind of get rid of this monster that's terrorizing people? Do you remember that legend? Part of the legend. I don't know. That's in there? I bet. Yeah, um, leave it to her though. There was a great painting in the uh, the Church of Saint Maximin where that was depicted. But, okay. But anyways, but Mary Magdalene, she uh, goes off into the mountains and finds this cave uh, where she decides to spend the rest of her life as a hermitess. And the legend says that she's there for thirty years. Uh, during which she's totally alone and lives just kind of on 
grace, I guess we should say. Because I don't think any part of the tradition said that she's like brought food by anyone. Mm. You know, it's not like uh, like St. Benedict when he was living in the cave. Right, you know, they had the... the he had the monk that would bring him food and other people would bring him food. But um, so she's just living like that. And then uh, at a certain point, this other hermit in the area, a priest, finds her one day, um, but like can't kind of get to her cave. He's like held up by like this force field. The force, field. Yeah, the yeah, force exactly. field, yeah. And so she... It's kind of funny because uh, Mary Magdalene hears this guy, and he's like, "Why can't I come see you?" She's like, "I'm not wearing any clothes," <laughs> and so she's like, uh, "So the, the priest like brings her something to put on, and she puts it on, and she says, okay, go tell Bishop Max, uh, what would it be in English? Maxima, Maximinus, Maximanus? Yeah, I don't know, Maxima. Maximinus, Maximinus, okay, whatever, and um, Maximan in the French, Maxima, yeah." Um, and uh, says, "Go, please go tell the bishop that I will appear to him tomorrow so that he can give me communion because I'm about to die. So the priest goes and does this. Mary Magdalene appears uh, in the bishop's chapel. In Aix. In Aix en Provence. Um, and he, he gives her communion, and then she dies. And uh, they take her to uh, a little ways away, uh, not too far from the, kind of between the grotto and Aix en Provence uh, today. And that's where they bury her. And there was a big church built there in the 13th century over that traditional site. And, um, and so that's where that kind of all that legend kind of came about. And then in the 13th century, the grotto and the church where her tomb was uh, were both given to the order of preachers, the Dominicans. Mm-hmm. So um, quite the story, right? And again, I, I just recently heard this, I think, like since Andrea cooked up this pilgrimage <laughs> idea. Now, you had been there because of the connection of the Dominicans, right. which we'll talk about um, in a little bit here. But I had kind of heard that, and I was like, yeah, okay, whatever. You know, mm-hmm. that's, kind of, that's kind of a bit wild. Um, but I tell you what, when we went and prayed in the cave in uh, Saint-Balm is the name of the the kind of the holy cave where she prayed, which is way back. So Marseille's right on the coast, and then you follow this river. I forget the name of it. Um, I won't even try and pronounce it. And you get back, <laughs> but this cave is really dramatic, kind of just right on this kind of these chalky cliffs and right. just like blocked right in there. And it's really, it's actually quite deep and really beautiful. But praying in there was... Um, was really the moment when I was like, "This is this is there's really something here. This is like this is a very powerful experience." Well, like um, we saw too that you know, um, obviously there's that tradition, um, but also there have been monks there since the fifth century. Yeah, four fifteen, I think the Cashonites. Yeah, if they were Cashonites, yeah, they'd be a little later. But yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, uh, but yeah, so Saint John Cashin. Uh, founds the monastery of St. Victor in Marseille, and some monks from that monastery inhabit this place as a holy place in the 5th century. Yeah. And so, and when we were there, you're looking around like, it's not the only mountain. Right. It's not the only cave right. in the area. Yeah. And it's actually not the easiest one to get to. It would have been completely random. Yeah. In the 5th century. For, right. There was some tradition about the thing. So the tradition seemingly is quite old that right. way. Right. And like when you say, wait, you say when you get there, it's. Um, yeah, there's just something really beautiful about it. I mean, there's been centuries of people praying there, of course, but um, there is something really, uh, really interesting about it. And I was thinking about that too, just kind of the, the place of legends within medieval culture in particular, um, which they don't, we don't really have anything in um, modern culture in the same way, or the, I should just put it this way, when moderns look at medieval legends, we don't quite know how to interpret them. I guess that's better, because mm-hmm. we actually do have kind of mm-hmm. our own mythic structures and ways yeah. that we talk about things. But um, uh, 
I always think about this because I live at a place called San Clemente over by the Colosseum, which is this absolutely gorgeous church, uh, really one of the treasures of Rome. And it's built on top of a fourth century church, which has paintings of the legend of the life of St. Clement there. And so like one of the parts of the legend is that Clement is thrown into the sea and that angels build him a tomb at the bottom of the sea. And every year on the anniversary of his death, the waters would part and people come down from the town to reverence the relics, you know, this sort of thing. And so we modern people look at that and go, okay, well, that's just obviously all made up. Right. But it's just a really unsophisticated way of looking at legends, it seems to me, right. in that medieval people didn't write legends because they thought they were giving you some sort of historical reportage about something. What they did was that they took historical data and then they sort of massaged it a bit and right. gave it other little details and not random details. So it seems to me that uh, the legend about St. Clement is that he's, yeah, he's thrown, he, he's in the Crimea, uh, in this kind of Roman work camp, gets thrown into the Black Sea attached to an anchor. Um, and there's a traditional, traditionally there's the tomb of St. Clement on the Black Sea until Cyril and Methodius go there. And that's another story. But um, it seems to me that, you know, on the coastline, like in lots of places in the world, the tides come and go such that certain part of the year, that tomb is underwater. Yeah. Other parts of the year, it's not. Or even part of the day or part of the month, whatever, you know, however the tides work there. And so the, t- the, the legend takes that up and just kind of says, no, it's once a year, you know, and the water is part. That's not a random detail. It's a detail from scripture. It's, the, it's Exodus. Because this is what medieval people are trying to do, is trying to take the events of salvation history and weave them into their own kind of religious experience, you know, here and now. And I think... You know, it's it's that same kind of optic can go to this legend. I haven't done the research to kind of say, you know, what would be the historical data there. But I think as modern people and as modern believers in particular, it's really important that we kind of say, okay, these legends aren't just total fabrication. Yeah. We have to understand, like, the, the milieu that they came out of and what are they trying to teach us as well. I think that's very well said. The... Um the it's the presuppositions around it of that we approach this from this kind of modern scientific perspective. Is it true? Is it false? This detail is not true. Therefore, the whole thing. And it's like, mm-hmm. we're, yeah, we're missing the point. It with their 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 lives are so richly soaked in the salvation in, in salvation history that they're locating the lives of these saints in God's work um, in these saints back in that story and kind of yeah, it's it's. It's instructive. It's teaching, but it's kind of permeating out of this, this, like you said, this ethos. And so, yeah, we 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 have a, we think that we're just better now. You mm-hmm. know, we think that we've got it figured out, and we're more precise, and uh, we see through all this myth. Everything was just myth and superstition before, yeah. uh, but but our world is so much more tragic and just kind of plastic and empty, and um, it's lost that richness because it's lost mystery and it's lost the kind of the humanity in, in terms of how do you communicate story. Um, and it's all just down to kind of facts, you know, it's just legal. We just want legal verification and for these right. things. And so, no. And so kind of the redevelopment of that imagination is really important. It seems to me, I think again, for modern believers, because so much of the way the faith is communicated and so much of the way the faith is lived classically, you know, uh, requires that sort of imagination and that sort of being able to enter into reality that has a sort of deeper significance and meaning to it. And then if you don't have sort of the the tools and the habits to engage the world like that, then um, you're either just going to seem really immature or credulous, or you're just going to give up on it yeah. at a certain point. Yeah, yeah. It's just it's the loss of the imagination. It's the loss of just kind of. Uh, uh, 
dimensions and facets of the human mind. I think of the way Keating taught us about the medieval man and mm-hmm. just kind of how he saw the world. And and if he kind of dropped into our world right now, Keating would always talk about this. Like he, <laughs> we'd be in the corner, we'd be so intimidated mm-hmm. because they just you know um, there was such a uh, again such a richness um, to the and an expansiveness to the way they were able to see the world. And with all of our information and and ways of verifying these things uh, in modern technological society. Uh, something's really tragically lost. So, yeah. So it's good to kind of check ourselves on that, uh, but also to experience it, to just go there. And uh, so, again, the, the principal places are St. Baum is the holy cave, and then St. Maximin is the name of the town where the medieval basilica is that houses her relics. Right. Uh, we had mass in both places, which was amazing. Um, and uh, and I think she came into, I forget the name of the town. And you think I would know this. Uh, Saint-Marie-de-la-Mer. Okay. Where I guess that's that? the town okay. on the provincial shore that she... Oh, where they landed. Yeah, where they landed. So, so they didn't land at Marseille. They didn't land at Marseille. Ah, uh, okay, gotcha. So anyways, that's that. Um, but yeah, Dominicans have been have been around it for a long time. The shrine of uh, Saint-Baume was destroyed, right, in the Revolution. Yes. French Revolution, they just kind of destroyed everything. Yeah. And then, uh, but then it was rebuilt. Uh, 1859, I think, Father Lacordaire. Yeah, the Henri Lacordaire kind of really kind of restored, was part of kind of the restoration of Catholicism in France, mm-hmm. you know, in the, in the early part of the 19th century, and uh, was a Dominican and uh, really kind of helped restore the order as well. Right. Yeah. The other um, side of the way we approach these questions, it's like, okay, do I have to believe this? You know, right. this is, they're going to ask this. People ask these questions. Do I have to believe this? And it's yep. like, that, that's the wrong question uh, right there. You know, it's like, what is the, what are the minimum things that I have to kind of believe? And it's like, well, just, you know, this is not the way that they approach these things uh, in the early centuries. So the Greeks have a tradition that she went to Ephesus and she died there. And then they transferred the relics to Constantinople. Oh, really? Okay. I didn't do the research on that. Yeah. Okay. So, but in the Latin West, we've always held that this is where she ended up. So, uh, these things, do we know? No, you know, not necessarily, but um, again, if you go to a place where people have been praying consistently for 16 centuries, um, you're going to sense there's something, there's something to this. You don't just kind of casually, you know, start a monastery and then, you know, it just goes for 16 centuries in a place. Yeah, that's There's right. something very profound about it. So, you know, and I think there's a number of mysteries kind of wrapped up in a thing like that. Like you say, it's just, it's too random not to have something to it, it seems to me. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, that's not an apodictic argument for sort of scientific clarity, I, I'll grant you that. However, there is something uh, within Catholicism and just Christianity, uh, and because of the mystery of the Incarnation, that place is just you know, crucial mm-hmm. and fundamental, and that certain places have a certain kind of significance. And yes, can we experience God wherever and however? Sure. You know, can we pray anywhere? Fine. But there are obviously places where, um, and it kind of ties into the mystery of today. Today's All Saints Day when we're recording this. Um, this communion that we have with believers that have gone before us and that have lived um, their own consecration and their own sanctification in certain places and times, and that through our union with them in prayer, uh, in the Eucharist, in the sacraments, in the shared faith of the Church, um, when you've had people kind of in a particular place doing that over the centuries, it just kind of hallows the place in a way that um, is palpable when you go to it. And like you said, you go to the cave, there's something there, you know? And the friars who take care of the place, people will say, well, was Mary Magdalene like really here, you know? And they're like, we can't say for sure, but we know she's here now. Hmm, yeah. Because there's relics of her, 
And also, even if you want to kind of you know stick your nose up at relics and just kind of say, there have been people coming here to this cave to ask the intercession of Mary Magdalene for centuries. And so even if you want to be skeptical about the authenticity of this or that relic or this or that experience, you've had Christians coming there with very specific uh, intentions and very specific requests for intercession from Mary Magdalene. And so if you believe in the communion of saints, which I, that's one of those things you have to believe, by the right. way, if you're going to be Christian. Right. Uh, she's there in that sense at the very least. Yeah. And that's not nothing. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. So if you find yourself going to Provence because you like lavender, which my mother made me. She <laughs> yes, said, we looked forget, all over for that lavender. Don't forget to bring me lavender. <laughs> so if you're going for other reasons, I highly recommend this place. So uh, let's shift gears for a second and talk about uh, Mary Magdalene herself because even the character biblically is kind sure. of this kind of tricky, you know, character. So Mary Magdalene. Do you Mag- have notes on this? I do. I okay, very good. Do you have thoughts on this? No, no, no. I want you to start this. This is just very brief. We'll just touch on it. We're okay. not going to kind of go into it too deep. So Mary Magdalene uh, called, um, there's two reasons for her name. She's either from Magdala, the town, which I think was recently discovered uh, by archaeologists. In we were talking about that when they we were found there. found something. Yeah. This is near Tiberias, so up in Galilee on the west shore. Or it comes, the name Magdala comes from some Talmudic expression, meaning curling, uh, a woman's a woman's curly hair. So Andrea Polito prefers this uh, title, I think. Sure. But, but basically, we think, you know, she's from Magdala. She's from the town of Magdala. So. Yeah, that sounds yeah, so. on better footing to me. The tricky thing is um, you got these kind of different women, and they kind of look like they're the same, but we're not sure are they the same. So mm-hmm. there's basically three women and we're wondering, are they the same? Number one, the three different persons. Um, number one, the sinner, the woman caught in adultery. Caught in adultery, yeah. Luke chapter 7. Number two, the sister of Martha, Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus mm-hmm. from Luke 10 and John 11. And then uh, Mary Magdalene herself, who is attested to by that name uh, throughout Scripture. Gotcha. So there's like the sinful woman, mm-hmm. and she doesn't have a name, right? Mm-mm. No sinful. And then you got Mary of Bethany, mm-hmm. from whom was cast out seven devils, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you've got Mary Magdalene, who's with the apostles. Exactly. Okay. That's it. Right. And so some people want to say, that's all the same person. Some people to say, uh, two of them are the same, but not all three. And then some people just want to say they're all three different people. Yeah. So basically, the two different approaches, the Greek fathers distinguish and the Western fathers say they're the same. Ah, okay. So early on, you have these two different kind of... Sure. Opinions to say. So it's not just modern biblical scholarship that tries to... To kind of dissect them, but apparently the Greek fathers, I don't, I don't know which ones, it doesn't particularly go into details, but um, but yeah, in the West, our tradition is to say, we kind of identify them naturally as the same, uh, as the same person. And uh, so again, this is one of those questions of like, do we know, you know? Yeah. Not necessarily. I mean, we kind of, you know, you do the best you can, but the, the point is not like, the whole... The whole purpose of the faith and knowledge in the faith is to lead us into mystery. So um, it's not about I got it. We got to figure out the system and you know get the playbook and have everything kind of worked out perfectly. It's like well, I, when I think about the the historical and personal character of Revelation, it's messy. It's mm-hmm. like you're telling stories about me in the Uffizi. Yeah. Okay. That's that happened to me. Right. I have no memory of that. <laughs> right. Yeah. So you think about that. That happened 12 years ago. Right. So we're talking about events that happened 2,000 years ago, and it's like, is that false? And it's like, well, therefore, that would never happen. Mm-hmm. You know, this is obviously just a power thing. We just made this up. It's some kind of crazy hermeneutic right. and uh, about, I don't know, <laughs> the suppressing art or something. And so, 
um, or you're trying to defame my character. It's like, no, it's just like we naturally focus and accent different things. And even as we recall these things, humanly, we focus on different, you know, aspects, different. Uh, and so it's, it's like different highlights in these different things, but it's not necessarily always kind of cookie cutter put together. No, and that's why, you know, um, I think it's always important, particularly as Catholics, to realize that when we talk about revelation and even talk about kind of what how God reveals himself, um, it's not predominantly in, like, books or words or propositions even, you know, um, but it is in events and it is in persons, you know, um, and our access to that, we have certain privilege accesses to that, and so Scripture is obviously the privileged, one of the privileged uh, kind of sources of revelation, the tradition, the magisterium. But again, we're all kind of going at this experience of revelation, which is God's self-revelation to us, which um, He reveals Himself to us in a way that we can understand, and that's in times and places and experiences and persons. And um, like you say, that's messy, because the way we receive things is messy and the way that we try to preserve it is messy. And, you know, some people say, yeah, the gospels kind of contradict each other in this way. It's like, well, that's actually an argument for their authenticity. Cause if you just had these four accounts that were like all the exact same, you'd mm-hmm. be like, um, did you all talk before this? Like, yeah. did you get your story straight here? You know, it just seems inauthentic in a way. Yeah. It's like, no, like you said, different emphases. And then when you actually study scripture and this is, you know, like, um, uh, we all were talking about this on a podcast recently um, with Father Mike about the uh, kind of the emphases of the Gospel of Luke. You know, he's got certain theological things that he wants to emphasize about Christ, and he's going to tell stories to emphasize those things, mm-hmm. just like we all do, mm-hmm. you know. And so um, it's just kind of the nature and character of Revelation. And uh, we see that coming out even in these legends and even in these stories of the saints' lives that, uh, again, kind of medieval man, ancient medieval kind of Christian minds. Uh, it wasn't just about telling true stories that I have, you know, apodictic proof for, but it was like, no, ultimately the point here is to raise your mind and heart to God in some significant way um, and to lead you through, lead you to that through these people's lives. I had an interesting conversation with a friend uh, a few days ago. We were talking about the nature of, of ascent, and I was telling her, I said, I hate recommending this book to you because it's going to bore you severely, but it's like one of the most important books I've ever read, which is um, The Grammar They Sent by John Henry. Oh, Newman. yeah. Mm-hmm. Because what it, did, it, what it did, what it did, is it did. gave... You said porpoise earlier. I didn't want to stop you. But well, you said apodictic. Like, that's a real word. No, I'm just joking. Yeah. Look it up. I, I'm just joking. The, uh, Where's your phone? Um, porpoise. Porpoise. <laughs> I did say porpoise. The um, this is me passing out in the Afutsi. I'm like starting to slur. <laughs> Blood the sugar's going down. <laughs> What'd you put in this wine, man? The uh, but the point of the conversation was just the 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 way that we know things in faith. Um, it is a real knowing. Uh, it's a real intellectual act. Um, but ascent, as Newman would say, is different. Is a different kind of knowing. And mm-hmm. uh, one of the things he points out is he says in the in the court of law you don't start with facts. You start with witnesses. That's right. And uh, I think that's one of the key things is when we, when we talk about Mary Magdalene, we talk about this woman whose life was completely and radically transformed from uh, total slavery to sin uh, into one of the most radical models of discipleship and um, kind of this burning ardent love for Christ that led her across Europe um, and into uh, preaching the gospel and into this cave for decades um, and is still interceding. Uh, in the communion of saints. When we talk about her as a model, we're beginning with the witness of Scripture. We're not beginning with the facts of her life. Mm-hmm. You know? And so, again, um, these things are kind of tricky to kind of 
put together because they are human testimony, divine inspiration through human testimony and these things. But um, again, uh, the the key is to the mystery of this person and the way that grace uh, radically transformed her life. Yeah, and the legends, I think, also help us to say there's a particular optic that we need to be seeing our own lives in as well. That's why I like that example of the thing from San Clemente and that they're kind of using the events of Scripture as sort of this lens to see the, the, the life of St. Clement because that's also the way that we're supposed to see our own life, you know, is that we, uh, through our own meditation on the Gospels, through our own learning of the faith and kind of seeing how salvation history, the contours of salvation history, we're able to see how salvation history actually is part of our life or that we're, our lives are part of salvation history mm-hmm. as well. And that um, this is the way they're supposed to look at our own life and contemplate our own life and the things that happen in our lives that way. But again, that requires a whole different kind of imagination and a whole set of tools and ways, habits of mind that, again, modernity is really dead set against. Mm-hmm. One of the, uh, the last thing we'll say on this is shifting from uh, Luke, where we have a lot of this discussion of these women, to the Gospel of John, particularly the end, is kind of the most important hmm. moment. John chapter 20. So there's Mary Magdalene at the foot of the, um, at the, foot of the tomb. So Christ has been buried um, and this is the uh, the moment of the resurrection, and she's speaking to the angel, and we know the story, but then the angel says, go to the brothers and tell yeah. them. And so Mary is sent. So Mary Magdalene is not just like this nice model of this is what it looks like when you you know encounter Christ and receive grace, but she actually has a very specific role in the definitive moment of salvation history where she communicates and proclaims the gospel of the resurrection to the actually to the apostles themselves, a mm-hmm. woman goes to the apostles, and that's why Saint Thomas Aquinas calls her the Apostola Apostolorum. Apostola Apostolorum, which he says in his commentary on the Gospel of John, um, which he gets from Rabanus Maurus. Do you know that name? Yeah, medieval theologian. Yeah, I think he's like a ninth century guy. Yeah, he's kind of one of the Carolinian. Yeah, Archbishop of Mainz dies in eight fifty six. Yeah, so he wrote a, he wrote uh, on the life of Mary Magdalene, mm-hmm. and from the prologue he talks about. Uh, also, that's his phrase, not Saint Thomas's phrase. He apparently that was his okay. phrase, and then Aquinas nabbed it. Um, Apostle, Apostle, I was laughing at the Latin because on Lord's Day we were watching that Monty Python video from the life of Brian where the Latin, the graffiti scene. <laughs> yes. Romani, yeah. Ite, yeah. Romanus, Eunt, Domus, and the, the guard comes over and he's freaking out. And he's like, instead of beating him up, he corrects his Latin. And he's like, Domus? And he's like, Dative? And he's like, bah! and he pulls out his sword and he's yeah. like, accusative. <laughs> it's very funny and super nerdy, uh, but yeah, Monty Python. Look up that Latin. So, yeah, Aquinas talks about the threefold privilege um, of the Magdalene, this prophetic act mm-hmm. uh, in seeing the angels, and then that she has this, she's raised actually above the heights of the of what the angels themselves desire to see, and then this office of this uh, officium apostolicum uh, yeah. that she has as the apostle to the apostles. Pope Francis picked this up two years ago and uh, elevated what was a memorial to a feast, so he kind of heightened the uh, liturgical act uh, acknowledging this, which I think is a good thing. Um, and, uh, yeah, it, it's just, uh, she is, as a preacher, she goes to the boys and kind of gets them going because they all abandoned Christ and fled, as we know. <laughs> and so that's why with St. Dominic, and I, this is, I learned from you, uh, when we were in France together, that Mary Magdalene is one of the main uh, patrons of the 
uh, Order of Preachers. That's right. After Our Lady, Mary Magdalene is kind of the second patroness of the Order of Preachers because of this whole tradition, you know, this idea that she is the one who is entrusted with um, the apostolic preaching to give to the apostles themselves. And then St. Thomas, actually, in the Summa, at a certain point, talks about, um, uh, he asks the question about, uh, he's commenting on that injunction from St. Paul that, you know, uh, I do not allow a woman to speak in church, you know, and so this, you know, inspires that tradition about, you know, kind of reserving preaching to men in the church, fine. But what's interesting is St. Thomas says, yes, that's true, but because of Mary Magdalene, women have to have a teaching role in the church, and so we have to find some way of making this happen. Mm. It's really interesting, actually, in the 13th century. Yeah. Um, But just to kind of see, taking that reality so seriously and just kind of saying it's not just a moment in the lives of the apostles it's actually really significant for um there's something of the character of the church that's being revealed in giving that message to mary magdalene at that moment and so the place of women in the church and passing on the faith and teaching the faith uh is absolutely crucial it's founded really in that moment as well absolutely well said well done we better cut it here okay uh we're getting over 40 uh, I know. I'm Did dull, you finish your notes? I'll be griping. That's basically okay. all I got. All right. <laughs> um, so that's a that's a very basic introduction to uh, the Magdalene, Madeleine, and uh, yeah. If you're going to if you're going to France, go down to Provence. It, these churches were amazing. Saint Maximin, going to Saint Baume, um, incredible. And so, the countryside itself. Yes, and the, and especially. The goat cheese. The let's goat be honest. Cheese. I don't know what they do to those goats there. Man, oh but, man. Wow. Goat cheese, rosé. <laughs> You're going to come back 10 pounds heavier, but it's worth but it. But happier. But happier as and well. And holier. That's right. <laughs> so, shout outs before we close it up. Are you asking me? Yes. Do you have any? Uh, well, I feel like there's a couple people. Um, there's uh, these two girls in Brooklyn, in Brooklyn, New York, who have been longtime listeners. Haven't you given them like six shout outs? Well, I just feel like they're, they. <laughs> They're part of the reason that I was ever asked on the show in the first place. Oh, that's true. Because they hounded you for years. So Justine and Margaret Fernandez in Brooklyn and Bay Ridge, shout out to them. Nice. I'd like to give a shout out to all of you who reached out to my sister after the Kate and Grace uh, podcast. Thank you for, especially those of you who purchased from her, supporting her cause. Uh, I got Brother of the Year Award for that one. Wow, nice. And uh, so just really grateful for... um, she was just so uh, excited to be in touch with you and those of you who reaching out interested in, in uh, her apostolate and her kind of uh, mission. So thanks for that. Well, what do you think? That wasn't as scary as you thought, huh? Not as scary as I thought it was going to be. The next one could be scary, though. I was going to so. say. <laughs> well, well done. Great to have you on. And uh, yeah, we don't know exactly when this will come out, uh, when the boys kind of fit us in back home. Um, but again, this is just a real joy to be with you here in Rome together, podcasting. Uh, so here's the maiden voyage. Thank you very much. Cheers, my friend. Catholic Stuff Podcast at gmail.com. Like us on Facebook, and uh, we'll see you next week.